phone. I can reach my Me. face. Can you reach your hand to my hand? Can we touch hands from this distance? <laughs> oh, we're so cute. <laughs> now, if there's a particularly tense moment during a story, we could just hold hands. Okay. Welcome to this episode of the Marble Forest Podcast, starring your host, Jesse and Amber, and not Steven, because Steven hates us. He hates us. You know, I'm pretty sure he does. It was too, it, it was too... Spur the moment for him, our recording session. Whatever. Just because you went to a festival all weekend, Steven. I guess in our defense, though, Amber. In our defense. We probably could have told him when we had talked about it earlier in the day. Yeah, well, that would have been smart. (laughs) But, yeah, this is the, the podcast. We're doing... Things. This is episode 52. Ooh, 52. I didn't get a notebook out. Hang. Hang. 10. 9. Hang 8. On. 7. 6. 5. 4. 3. 2. 1. Wow. Great timing. Begin. Episode... 52. Did you know 52 is my basketball number? Oh, really? Yeah. It's the only even number I like. The only even number. That's a cool even number. I always went with my birth date or 14, which was uh, the the Detroit Red Wings, uh, at one point in time, assistant assistant person. Did you think he was hot? Assistant captain, Shanahan. Oh, was he hot? No. Oh. So we can't be hot? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let me do this right into the microphone. I should probably save, like, a really good one and, like, use it for, like, a random interlude. Like, Like the the power going out. The power going out? I just did that, like, little, like, two-second music do-do-do-do-do-do-do thing. Oh, that's funny. From our music. I love that, yeah. To be like, because all of a sudden we come back and we're like, wow, the power went out. (laughs) Wow, did you know the power went out? In theory, they probably wouldn't have needed to know. They probably wouldn't have. It was out for not that long. No, but the recording did a weird thing where it had the time still elapsed that the power was out. And so when we hit re-record, it like... There was, like, a space for nothing. So even though the recording stopped, the time, like, the little ticker time that's moving on our recording was still going. Oh. So I had to, like, zoom out and, like, move all of the audio back into... wild. I know. Yeah, we're here. We're recording. We're early. (laughs) Well, let's be... (laughs) Let's not get ahead of ourselves ever. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do anything exciting in the past two days? Yeah. No. I I walked Theo like two miles 
to play Pokemon Go. More than I walked. And then I almost fell because I slipped on some ice because I wasn't wearing, like, good, it's definitely winter shoes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I pulled uh, my hamstring in, in my leg. So, Ow. So my butt cheeks sort of been hurting. <laughs> Does it hurt to sit? No. Do you want to record this podcast standing up? No. Would that make it more uncomfortable for the listeners to know we were standing while recording the whole podcast? I don't know. I was thinking when I when I hit record on this, I was like, should we just start recording like the episodes? Like video? Yeah. Yeah. When I'm less sick, so I'm not snorting into the... And I probably want to put on makeup. Yeah. My hair not be greasy. My hair not just be up in a messy bun. All right. Well, we'll start recording some other time when we look cuter and more socially acceptable. <laughs> and less like gremlins that live under a bridge. I'm definitely a gremlin who lives under a bridge. That might be more I'm... podcast acceptable. A gremlin that lives under a bridge rather than a cute girl. <laughs> Maybe. Um, because I'm definitely a gremlin who hasn't left their house except to get food mm. this entire weekend. I've left my house a lot. Sorry. Huh. I left my house a lot. I was yawning. Yeah, you have to leave to get here. I do. I have to leave. I have no food in my house, so I need to leave for that. Yeah. All right. So I guess I don't really have anything else to talk about. Nothing exciting. I want to make a correction. Oh, okay. Um, to the uh, the episode that I'm currently editing. Okay. During uh, Mount Everest Part 2 and possibly Mount Everest Part 1... Um, I sounded very victim blamey. <laughs> um, because we were talking about deaths, and I n- understand that we would never fucking put ourselves in that scenario. Yeah, but I think in certain aspects we did come off as victim blamey of those who had passed on Mount Everest. Okay, great correction. So I apologize. Well, yeah, I don't know. Um, I haven't listened back to it. Yeah. I don't recall. But if I did also, I also apologize. So that is just like an editing note that I wanted to make. I, And it was especially on top of my mind because I finished reading um, the Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered book today. Yeah. Um. So it was especially on top of my head when I was re-editing it. And that was something that like Georgia and Karen had talked about. As they have grown with the podcast, they have taken corrections like that and trying to learn and understand things like that to not be victim blamey. Yeah. So that is definitely something that I will, I'm taking to heart. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of, I would recommend this book. <laughs> I'd, I've wanted to read it. It's on my list to read. I just haven't uh, gotten to it yet. Yeah. But yeah, good note. Any other notes? I don't think so. Okay. Besides, you bought us something from Goodwill. Yeah, I did. That was my note. Oh, I bought us a record for our wall. We don't have a record player, though. We don't have a record player, but it's famous ghost stories with spooky sounds. Spooky. I am going to get a record player specifically to play that. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh, what if I have one by Halloween? And for my Halloween party, it's just playing on repeat. I love that. Just spooky sound record player playing on repeat. Yeah. Perfect. Let's let's ride. Let's, let's drive. drive. Where's the coin? Oh, it's over there. You want to flip it or you want me to flip it or... Kick it! Right. It's you. Is it me? It's you. 
I think you're right about this coin. It's weighted. <laughs> I actually painted a dime into your side. Oh, wait. I painted a dime into my side. So, so that my side's never heavier. Had to go first. Yeah. And then you always have to go first. All right. In the world that we spoke about two weeks ago in our last episode, we're going on a trip in to our- Tennessee. Oh, yeah, yeah. We are. So I have. This is the Tennessee Mansion Tour. Ooh. But this is only one mansion. The other two mansions you will have to catch on our Patreon. Okay. So one mansion. One mansion, but it is the Tennessee Mansion Tour if you follow us on Patreon. Okay. (laughs) So we are beginning in Franklin, Tennessee. Okay. At the Curtin House, the, the Curtin Mansion. How do you spell that? It's Carnton. C-A-R-N? Yeah. T-O-N? Yeah. House or mansion? Mansion, plantation, thing. Thing. Okay. This first house turns out to have more history and ghosts that than I was... Because originally I was going to make this a Tennessee mansion tour where I would just do like a oh. couple of houses for um, an episode... But it sort of turned itself into its own episode. Okay. This ho- this mansion is a on a historic plantation and museum located in Franklin, Tennessee. It started when Randall McGavick migrated from Virginia and settled in Nashville, Tennessee, becoming a prominent local politician. Oh. He served as mayor of Nashville for one year term in 1824 and was acquainted with presidents like james k polk and andrew jackson okay like he was up at the up of all the town yeah so he was the who's who yeah he knew everyone he knew everyone including the most powerful man in the united states me yes you of course you Amber, the most powerful man in the United States. (laughs) So McGavick named his property near Franklin after his father's birthplace in Ireland. So the name Curtin was derived of the Gaelic term term, Kern, which means pile of stones. A Kern sometimes marks a burial site. Okay. And the first construction at Curtin was a smokehouse construction in 1815, that was adjoined to the main house by the kitchen wing in 1826. It was built on a raised limestone foundation with Pompeii red bricks. What is a Pompeii red brick? Did we look this up? We did. That's why I I, we pa- did? I paused for dramatic effect because I looked it up for you. Perfect, because you know I was going to ask. Yes. So... Colors frequently used in decor in the mansion were mustard yellow, dark blue, and Pompeii red. They're all colors that were found by archaeologists unearthed in Pompeii in the 1800s. Oh, wow. The discovery of Pompeii made these colors a popular American decor in the time. Is that a little fucked up? It is a little fucked up. Like, they're like, whoa, let's uncover dead people from a giant volcanic explosion. You know, that shade of red would look lovely on my walls. Yes, exactly. That mustard yellow, oh, it's to die for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my bad. 
I love that. <laughs> and so the house also is, it is a two-story house, brick build, brick, Pompeii red brick building with 22 rooms, a tin roof, and the front of the house boasts seven white columns with a large porch. And um, in some of the things that I had read about it, it's like a nice screened-in porch. It looks like very cozy, very south. Like, okay. Like, like something that I would want to sit on all day. Sit on your like little swing with your iced tea. Exactly. It sounds very relaxing. Okay. Yeah, I would love a nice screened-in front porch. And then the back of the house had another porch... Uh, that had four columns as well. So we're really into like the Greek columns. There's eight yeah. in the front and four in the back. Seven and four. Oh, seven and four. Okay. Yeah. Inside the house still contains most of the original furnishings from 1820 to 1860. The woodwork was treated, so it's not exactly, was treated to look like mahogany and rosewood. But it's fake. But it's fake. I don't know what kind of wood it is. Wow. Okay, first of all, <laughs> I already have issues with this house. All right. My first issue. Okay. Seven columns in the front is really bothering me. Ever since you brought it up a whole two minutes ago. (laughs) That's so uneven. It is uneven. And that doesn't look right in my head. It looks like the house is lopsided. I kept thinking about that too. Um, It doesn't really look that bad, but I don't have... I have the picture of the back of the house. So this is the back of the house. Okay. Well, that looks normal. Yeah, that looks... Yeah, it looks normal. (laughs) Um, oh, you Google the front of the house. Okay. I have my references up at the top of the page. So. Oh, perfect. Why do you keep showing the back of the house? Because they don't like that there's seven fucking pillars in the front. Okay, here's it's you can see the house. You can see the house um, very smallly in the background. That's the front porch. In the in in the background behind the cemetery. <laughs> I hate it. Okay, there needs to be either six. Or eight. Okay? Six pillars or eight pillars. But it doesn't look that bad. From and a I distance? I prefer odd numbers, but that looks wrong. I don't remember what my second thing I was bothered by was. Okay. Oh, they were fake covering their furniture. Oh. With, with the fake, fake wood? With fake wood colors. Yeah. Okay. So we're trying to be rich and we're not... It's only going to get worse. Oh, great. Because this is a plantation. I'm going to get so judgmental now. Okay. Buckle up. So the property itself sits on 1,400 acres. Okay. With 500 acres being used for farming. Oh. Farming. Farming. Air quotes. In the south. In the south. Among the crops, the McGavocks grew wheat, corn, oats, hay, and potatoes, they were also involved in raising and breeding livestock and thoroughbred horses. So they did none of that. And someone else did it for them. Got yeah, it? Yes. <laughs> People that did, did not pay. They just sat on their asses on their covered porch, drinking their sweet tea. And did nothing. Yeah. His daughter, Elizabeth, married William Giles Harding of Bell Mead Plantation. Why does that, be- that name sound familiar? Bell Mead? Oh, William Giles Harding. Will, uh, Giles Corey? Oh, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Okay. But they became internationally renowned for their thoroughbred farm. Oh. Weird side 
bar that you can remove. Okay. Don't you have to ejaculate the horses? Yes. To make sure they breed the way you want them to? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you got to jerk off a horse. I don't want to. (laughs) That's not my job. Well, I think that's like the now. I don't know. Did they? I don't know if they used to do that back in the 1800s. How did they breed thoroughbreds in the 1800s? Are you going to Google it? Siri's going to Google it. We'll see what she says. Okay. This is a lot of words I don't understand, and most of them are abbreviations. Okay. I'm just going to assume that we've been jacking off horses to get other horses since the beginning of time. Okay. (laughs) So, Randall McGavick died in 1843, leaving the Curtin Mansion to his son, John. In 1847, John McGavick remodeled the home, adding fashionable wallpaper, a new fireplace mantle, and carpet in every room. Oh, good. Even the bathrooms? I'm assuming even the bathrooms. I love a good carpeted bathroom in my mansion. Yeah. And then they really, like, leaned into the Greek revival style. Oh, okay. So they added sculptures? I don't know. It just that it just says Greek in a Greek revival style. So was the wallpaper all like satyrs and nymphs? I don't. I can't. Sure. Laurel leaves. Sure. Chalices. Yes. And sexy ladies. Oh yes. Okay. And it's all white and gold. Yes. Great. Some main main things to that were like detailed in multiple reports that I read about this place was a working clock in the parlor room, a 200 piece China set in the dining room and a rocking chair given by president Andrew Jackson. Oh, bougie. So bougie. In 1848, John married his cousin, Carrie Winder of his Duke, cousin? His cousin. <laughs> I don't like that. I, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what to tell you there. So he married his cousin, Carrie Winder of the Ducros Plantation in, in Louisiana. We're just going to skip that word. Okay. In Louisiana, who is famously known as the Widow of the South. The Widow. Yeah. So I, this was something that piqued my interest. The Widow of the South? Yes. It's piquing my interest. So the she only... married her cousin. Yes. But she was the widow, widow of the South before she married her cousin. Okay. Okay. So I couldn't find much about it besides that she went against contemporary norms, like social norms, with her, her liking wearing black, even as a very young girl. Same girl. She was the OG emo. And also, as we'll discuss later, her contribute. Uh, contribution during and after the Civil War. Okay. But in preparation for this marriage, Carrie and John created a one-acre garden to the west of the house. The working garden had vegetable squares, each surrounded by ornamental borders around a large orange tree as well as many flowers. Okay. So bougie. I was hoping you were going to be like, it's just a like pretty flower garden that people can walk through and just like, you know... Observe the beautiful flowers, like, secret garden style. Like, it's behind a hedge bush. Yeah. People can just go there to escape everything. 
Well, the garden was surrounded by a white picket fence. Well, there's still plants, like, crops in there, so that makes it less secret garden. And they had also installed a high fence on the north side to protect the plants and from animals in severe weather, as well as providing a degree of privacy to the family in the home <laughs> away from many slaves moving around the grounds. Oh, so they built the garden so that they didn't have to see their slaves. Yes. That's problematic. It is problematic. Very problematic. So Carrie and John would have five children, but only two would survive into adulthood. And just prior to the Civil War, John McGavick's net worth was... Um, net, net worth? Net worth, yeah. Okay. Was, I thought he said neck worth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, his neck was worth a lot. Yeah. He really had that shit insured. <laughs> he must have had the beefiest neck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. I'm in a certain kind of mood today. So... His net worth was $339,000 in 1860, which is about $12 million as of December of 2022. Wow. Okay. John McGavick was 46 when the Civil War began and was too old to enlist, but helped outfit and organize groups of Confederate soldiers. Oh, of course he did. Yeah. Carey contributed to the war effort by sewing the uniforms for relatives and friends. As well, as the war got closer to home, John McGavick sent most of his slaves to Louisiana so that they wouldn't be taken by Union authorities. Yep. I was predicting you were going to say something stupid like that. Yes. God, I hate these people. (laughs) I'm just giving you the history. I know, but people suck. (laughs) Like, history sucks. History does suck. So, but good thing... Shortly after the Civil War, you know, a lot of people were released, and we'll, we'll, we're going to talk about that here. We talk about, like, the after the Civil War here shortly. Okay, okay. When the Union troops took control of Middle Tennessee and learned of the McGavicks' efforts in to aid the South, they ended up taking thousands of dollars worth of grain, horses, cattle, and timber from the plantation. Oh, so they're like, you're helping the fucking South? Yes. You assholes. We're taking your shit. For ourselves, yeah. For us. Yeah. So on November 30th, 1864, Curtin became the largest temporary temporary field hospital for tending the wounded and dying after the Battle of Franklin. Is that for both sides or was it mostly just for Confederate It was soldiers? the Confederate side that okay. was the field hospital. But there were many Union soldiers who lost their lives in that battle as well that were on the property. Okay, so they they were brought there and died, or they died on the property. Is that what it sounded like? I think it, I think it's a I it, we'll get into that for like in a, just a little bit. Okay, but I believe they died on the Curtin Plantation property. Okay. But the home was situated less than one mile from the location of the battlefield. Oh, wow. More than 1,750 Confederate soldiers lost their lives in the Battle of Franklin. The McGavicks tended to as many as 300 soldiers inside of Curtin alone, though at least 150 died that first night. Wow. 
Wow. That's a lot in one night. Yeah. Wow. I mean, like, it's great that they tried to help people out that were dying. I cannot imagine how haunted this place is. Yes. There, there is more than I, I probably put in here. There, also one of the things that I found, I think, regarding this mansion is I, I was having troubles finding more, like, ghost experiences because someone wrote about a book of all the ghost experiences that occurred oh, wow. here. Okay. And, like, the internet did not give it to me for free. And so I was right. not buying the book. <laughs> right. That's fair. <laughs> Hundreds more were spread throughout the rest of the property as well, including the slave cabins. Carrie McGavick donated food, clothing, and supplies to care for the wounded and dying. And witnesses say her dress was blood-soaked at the bottom. Oh, wow. Her two children, Haiti, then nine, and son Winder, then seven, witnessed the carnage, but they also provided some basic assistance to the surgeons. Probably, um, like, handing them scalpels and stuff. Yes. So, uh, like, hold this piece of skin here. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope not. That is more traumatizing <laughs> than I think any child. Well, like, war is happening, like, right. um, less than a mile from their home. So, that's probably something... They're already traumatized. So like, get me a bucket of water. Not like, you know. Here, put this bucket to collect all this blood here. <laughs> here. Make a two-inch incision right here. <laughs> you seven-year-old. <laughs> oh, no. So, currently, still, in the museum, the wood floors are still stained with blood from the makeshift hospital. Oh, wow. Like, so, it's a museum now. Yes, it is currently a museum. Okay. The heaviest stains are found in the southern-facing bedrooms, which were used as the operating rooms. Okay. From the loss of life of the Battle of Franklin, the the McGavick Confederate Cemetery began. To the northwest of the house, there is a two-acre section of property that is the largest privately owned military cemetery in the United States. After the battle on December 1st, 1864... Union forces under Major General John M. Schofield evacuated towards Nashville, leaving all of the dead, including several hundred Union soldiers and the wounded who were unable to walk. Several hundred? Yes. Holy shit. Okay. And the wounded. Yes. The residents of Franklin were faced with the task of burying over 2,500 soldiers, most of them being Confederate. Wow. All of the dead Confederate soldiers were buried as nearly as possible to the states that they had resided in, and wooden crosses were placed at each grave with the name, company, and regiment painted on them. For the Union or Confederate? Sorry, I missed that. Confederate. Many Union soldiers were not given uh, good funeral rites initially, but a year later... They were re-given funeral rites in 1865, and they were moved to the Stones River National Cemetery in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Oh, that's respectful, though. Yeah. To, like, go back and be like, hey, we're going to give you your proper burial rites and move you somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, the McGavick family donated the cemetery to the state as a permanent burial ground for the soldiers killed in the Battle of Franklin which the state has rearranged the cemetery, resulting in 
um, these large pathways. And the citizens of Franklin raised funding to exhume the soldiers' bodies and rebury them for a sum of $5 per soldier. Oh, wow. The team of individuals was led by George Cuppet, who took responsibility for the reburial of 1,481 soldiers and one civilian. And one civilian. And one civilian. The original names and identities of the soldiers were recorded by recorded in the cemetery record book by Cuppet, and that book fell into the watchful hands of Carrie McGavick. After the war, McGavick continued to farm Curtin under sharecropping arrangements with former slaves until his death in 1893. And for purposes of definitions, sharecropping is when families would rent small plots of land or shares to work themselves. In return, they would give a portion of their crop to the landowner at the end of the harvest season, which would be the McGavicks being the landowner, but they technically are able to use that land. Okay. And make money on their own. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. So the, if there were former slaves that worked there probably just trying to make a living? Yes. Okay. Well, because, like, I can't even imagine after the Civil War when all of a sudden everything, like, it's good that you've been released, but you have no way of making it on your own. Right. You have no income, nowhere to go. Like, what you've probably known for the last however many years of your life, depending on how long you've been enslaved. Yeah. It is, I feel like that is a good, like, at least they had some source of, hey, I can, I can make money this way. I can, I can start providing for myself this way. Yeah. And it was like, it was, it was definitely easy also for the plantation owners and the landowners at the time, because it was like a give and take, you know, like I can't legally have imprisoned these people anymore, but if they are willing to sell these crops... I still would get a portion of it, but they also get, a, like, a right. portion of it. There's still definitely some problematic stuff with that, but, like, oh, yes. it does seem like it gives... <laughs> it does seem like it gives those former slaves and people who didn't have anything a place to start. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that's how I think about it, too. Um, I mean, we... Yeah, correct us if we're wrong, but that's what it seems like. It just gave, it gave them a place to, to start providing for themselves and getting out there on their own and yeah yes yes please correct us if we are wrong with anything we have said but carrie mcgavick uh managed the maintenance of the cemetery with the african-american workers for 41 years until her death in 1905 so it sounded like she had employed those people to help her and in 1909, the Eastern Kitchen Wing was destroyed by a tornado. I don't know. I just threw that in there. Winders, her, so the Carrie son. and John's son. Um, Who was seven, performing surgery. Yes, probably. but now he's older now. <laughs> so he ended up passing away, and his widow claimed property of the home and sold it in 1911, ending ownership, the century ownership of the family. Like, so the family no longer owned it. Yes. The curtain then passed through the hands of several owners, and by the late 1960s and 1970s, the property was in disrepair. In 1977, the Curtin Association was formed to raise money to buy, restore, and maintain the mansion. The following year, the house and 10 acres were given by 
the given to the association by Dr. and Mrs. W.D. Shug, Sug, who had owned the property since the 1950s. And subsequently, the association acquired an additional 38 acres and began the restoration of the house and grounds that were completed in the late 1990s. Okay. So they, they worked on restoring the property probably to its former glory. Yeah. In 1973, uh, it was listed on the National Registration National Register of Historic Places. Okay, isn't there something where if once your house or once your property is registered as like an historical landmark, there's only certain changes that you can make it. Like it has to remain historically like accurate. Yes. So that's why I think most of those places turn into museums. Right. Because you can't really. You could probably live in the home, but you can't do renovations to the home. Right. I believe, like, you can't change, like, if you decide, oh, I want nicer wallpaper, like... No. Yeah. I think it has to stay pretty historically accurate. Yes. Especially with the, I would say with this mansion, the the big contribution to the Civil War, whether, no matter what side it was on, it that is a huge part of American history. Right. The curtain has never received any funding or support from the local, state, or federal government. The site is maintained and managed by the Battle of Franklin Trust as a nonprofit organization which also manages the battlefield, historic home, and Carter House. Which, the Carter House is also something that in the future I'd like to look into, but was definitely too long of a story in history for the Tennessee Mansion to Right, it. yeah. So now we're finally on to the ghosts. All right. Ghost me up. Ghost you. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've done a ghost episode. I know. Just a straight, like, this is a haunted house like, kind of thing. Yeah. We need some ghosts. We've been like, ooh, check out this cryptid or this weird, creepy story. Or I wanted to talk about dead bodies. Here we are. Ghosting it up. Here we are. Ghosting it up. Ghost me, baby. <laughs> Except please don't, because then I wouldn't know what to do if I never talk to you again. <laughs> This podcast would die. <laughs> oh my gosh. It would though. You start doing the podcast with Steven. I could never, like if I was ghosting any of our friends, I would have to move. You ghost me and then replace me with Steven. <laughs> that would be so rude. <laughs> <laughs> we started this podcast like five years ago together. Fuck you. Replacing you with Steven, who uh, couldn't even be here. He couldn't even be here. So, we're going to start off with the servant spirits. Okay. There are, and I'm, I'm going to refer to them as servants, um, because it is after the fact of slavery. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that is correct or not, but that is how I phrased it, like, past their deaths. Okay. Um, but starting with the servant spirits... There are two spirits that haunt the kitchen area of the mansion and sometimes move to other parts of the house, but they mostly stay in the kitchen. One is believed to be the head cook who had worked with the family during the Civil War years, who can be seen floating in the hallway near the kitchen. And the cook can often be heard bustling around the kitchen going about her business, like normal, just like cooking sounds in the kitchen. I'm making stew. But isn't that weird if it, like, what if you got the smells from it, too? Right? It just make me hungry. (laughs) You just ate. I know. 
Um, but it would make me hungry. Yeah. You know, imagine you're in this house, you're in a house, any house, and there's a ghost chef that just, you hear some pots and pans clatter. You hear like the, the sound of like the whoosh of the fire, like for a stove, even though you don't have a stove like that. <laughs> <laughs> you have a fancy electric stove. A whoosh of the... You hear the click of the burner. The click of the burner, yeah. And then all of a sudden you start smelling like the most delicious beef stew you've ever smelled in your life. And you hear the pots and clant pans and clicking around. fresh bread baking in the oven. <laughs> and then you walk in and there's no one there. And then you're disappointed that you don't have fresh bread and stew. Exactly. So the other spirit is supposedly a girl who was murdered before the war. By a jealous suitor whom she rejected. Oh. Uh, She tends to be mischievous and likes to play tricks on the living when when they're not doing their chores. So when the living aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, she's like, I'm going to pants you. Yes. Well, definitely not (laughs) pants, but that's a trick. (laughs) It is a trick. So she is said to still sweep the floors at dusk, though. But one curator who was hearing noises outside on the front enclosed porch, he went to investigate to find it. Did, this does not feel like too much of a prank to me, but like it okay. was a prank. Um, he investigated to find two panes of glass that were once on a shelf, but were taken down and placed on either side of the back door because they weren't replaced yet. Haha, <laughs> what a prank! <laughs> But that, but that's sort of like the the thing where, hey, you're not doing your chores. You're not doing your job. You, you said you, they told you to replace these windows. It doesn't sound like a prank though. It sounds like a person being like, your manager. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I wrote so mischievous. <laughs> I like the manager ghost. The manager ghost. There is a lady in white that is usually spotted on the back porch area, sometimes floating into the backyard. And there's really not much about her. There is also a spirit scene of a beautiful girl with long brown hair. She once appeared for a workman who was working on the second floor hallway. Okay. Her appearance scared him and he hastily fled down the stairs and when they would not continue working on the second floor without a buddy. Oh. And I'm like... They had to use the buddy system? They had to use the buddy system. But I'm like, I think you... Like, are you... you this ghost just appeared to you and you're, like, so scared that you need a buddy now? Maybe he's afraid of women. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he doesn't know how to talk to women. And so he's like, I need a wingman. <laughs> I need a wingman. So there is the spirits of the battle that tend to be more active in the autumn months at dusk. There is the spirit of a soldier who resides in one of the bedrooms, that like the surgical bedrooms. It is unsure where, whether he died in or out of the home. Yeah. But nonetheless, he moved into one of the bedrooms of the mansion. I live here now. <laughs> Pretty much. And one of the things that has occurred while he has been living in said bedroom is that there was a loud crash that came from the room one day. When it was investigated, it was found that a picture of the mansion had, had fell off the wall on top of a floor heater. That was it. He knocked down a picture of the mansion? Yeah, he says, fuck this place. I died here, probably. Yeah. 
There is one general. I have a comment before. Okay. He just saw the picture of the mansion. He was like, there's seven fucking pillars. <laughs> this is so unsatisfying. And threw it on the ground. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. He was that- pissed. It wasn't symmetrical enough for him. Ghosts respect symmetry. <laughs> there is one general who isn't able to rest because he is worried about his men. He is seen pacing around the perimeter of the mansion and on the back porch. And he is believed to be the spirit of General Pat Cleburne. Cle- Cleborn? Burn? Cleburne. Sure. Yep. Sure. Pat Cleburne. Pat Cleburne. Yes. He appears with a mustache, a short beard, and piercing eyes. Pierce. So, to speak more on Mr. General Pat Cleburne, there is one story told by Mr. P, is how he will be referred to in this. Okay. And Mr. P had an ancestor fight in the Battle of Franklin. He came to visit the Curtin Mansion just after 5 p.m. to see that the Curtin Mansion was closed. Instead of leaving, he walked around, found a path around that led him around the mansion, and just sort of taking in the property alone, thinking that, uh, just thinking about his relative who had fought here and survived. Okay. Near the porch, he saw the silhouette of a man that he thought was about to get on a horse. But the horse vanished before his eyes. But the man didn't? The man's still, like, half on a horse in the midair? I, it, it sounds like the man and the horse vanished okay. in the story. I like the idea better of, like, you see this man get on this horse in And then they mission, just vanish. And then the horse vanishes, but the man is still bow-legged in the middle of the air. Sorry, I probably wrote that wrong. <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. So... During this, he noticed another man on the porch. Mr. P walked up to him and asked him what had happened to the horse. Oh, maybe it was just the horse that disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) The the guy was just standing there. The guy was just standing there. The man explained to him that the horse was shot from underneath the other soldier, like his horse had been earlier. The man was dressed like a Civil War Confederate officer and went on to explain that whether on horse or on foot, that they would be at the mercy of the enemy tonight. Okay. He continued that if Mr. P was coming with him, he better have a pistol or he wouldn't last long. So like the battle, the battle, the battle of Franklin. Yes. The anger in the officer grew as he continued stating that not many men were going to make it through the night. And it was the fault of the fool, Hood, who had ordered his men into this soon-to-be-slaughtered. I don't know what Hood means in that statement, but probably something. Maybe it's like someone's name? Maybe? I don't know. Maybe it's old-timey slang. Yeah. So, he began to hum a line or two from a rallying song. And Mr. P was thinking that the officer must have been a part of a Civil War reenactment. It was including him along in the story. Oh. He asked the officer what kind of carbide he was carrying, which he responded, it's an Enfield 577. What do you have? Where Mr. P confesses that he doesn't have any, nor would know how to use it. Okay. 
So he's just having a full-blown conversation with a ghost right now. Yes. And the ghost is like, oh, this is what my gun is. What about your gun? Like, totally involved in the conversation. Yes. Like, very, what's the intelligent yeah. kind of things. His comment astonished and alarmed the officer. Who urgently told him he needed him to quickly leave and go either to the Carter house or to town out of harm's way. The officer then talks to another spirit by his side that Mr. P cannot see, saying, Well, Joven, if we are to die, let us die like men. Wow. I know, right? The officer then throws his hat up in the air in an angry, forceful way and then just melts away into the air. Oh, wow. Mr. P began to hear the sound of battle. Hearing the officer's voice yelling, charge, men, charge. Then it continued to hear the sound of shots, shells, muskets, and cannon filled the air. He heard the music of the regiment band play Annie, Annie Laurie and then heard the whole army rebel yells with fierce nerve jolting cries. So he fucking talked to a soldier and then heard a full blown battle start. Yes. So he was terrified. This is such a detailed haunt. Like... I know. And, 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 and this, he's definitely referred to as Mr. P because that's the only thing that he'll allow. Like, right. he's like, I'm just, I'll tell you my story, but this is how you're going to refer to me as. Right. He doesn't want to be like his full name out there. Yeah, exactly. Cause he probably also thinks he's crazy. Probably. But I'm like, this, this is, none of this about the story sounds crazy to me in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I think it's insanely cool that, like, it's such a detailed haunt. Like, this is such an intelligent haunting. Yeah. So, terrified, Mr. P tried to run to his car, surrounded by the battle sounds, and it felt cold, creepy feeling of death around him. Oh, there were probably so many spirits. Yeah. But he found himself stumbling around the graveyard near the mansion instead. That's not where your car is, buddy. Yes. So once he collected himself, he did find his car and he drove away. Okay. The next day, he came back to Curtin Mansion when it was open and found out that the officer that he had talked to is the much-loved Irishman General Pat Cleburne. Oh, wow. And was not a reenactment. That's so crazy. Wow. What a crazy detailed, like, sighting. I know, right? That's a great one. I know. And so, unfortunately, that's the story that ends the Curtain Mansion. I mean, that was a good one to end it on, though. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, that yeah was you great. have to end it on this. That was great. So, we understand, you know, that... The Civil War was a terrible thing, but we do get interesting history out of it, including that story. It's such important history, too, because it was such a big part of our country. Yeah. So, yeah, great job, Jesse. That was good. Thanks. And scene. You ready to hear me butcher names? Yes. All right. I hope you're excited. I'm excited about this story. 
I wish I would have gotten done my story to to make it a double alien feature. Yes. Story, but um, I didn't. So that is why I did um, the Tennessee Mansion tour. I love it. I went alien, obviously. So I rabbit holed when I was looking for stories. Okay. And I was like, huh, I want to look up alien stories. And then I was just like, what alien story could I do? And I looked at this list and it was the first part of the list was alien stories of antiquity. Okay. So we're going to talk about ancient alien sightings. (gasps) Oh, really? Yeah. Like ancient UFOs. That's what we're talking about today. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm going to butcher so many names. I'm going to talk about these basically in like an oldest to newest fashion. Okay. In chronological order-ish. As best as I can. Okay. Are there like BC things? Oh, wow. We're talking mostly BC, like early AD UFO sightings, like ancient alien sightings. Ooh, that's really exciting. So I'm going to butcher a bunch of names, and I already know this. Okay. But... Um, I figured, so, like, sorting it this way would be the easiest way to kind of get through it. Um, but a lot of these time frames are l- potentially documented slightly wrong because of how old they are. Okay. So a lot of these sightings were thought to be signs from the heavens or deities that people who reported the sightings believed in. Oh, yeah, like gods, goddesses. Right. So, but when people look back at this through a modern lens, they believe that the sightings could be UFO sightings. So I'm going to report the sightings to you, and then maybe we can discuss, like, how we feel about the sightings. Okay. If we feel like, oh, maybe that was a sign from Aphrodite. From the heavens. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Random God. <laughs> random God Zeus. Well, there is a temple of Zeus in uh, Iceland. I think so. I think yeah. you're right. I think there's a temple of Zeus in Iceland. So first, we're going to talk about the oldest recording sighting, recorded sighting I could find. Okay. An event that took place around 14, 1440 BC. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so the event was documented on an ancient Egyptian papyrus called the, Tutu- the Tuli Papyrus. Papyrus? Wow. Called the Tuli Papyrus. The sighting dates back to the reign of the Third. The text went viral in 1930. Oh, it went viral? Yes. It went 1930s viral. 1930s viral. Okay. So during a visit to Cairo in 1933, Alberto Tuli from, who the text took its name from, a director of the Egyptian section of the Vatican Museum, allegedly discovered an interesting papyrus in an antique shop. Tuli thought that the papyrus was way too expensive to buy, so he instead made a copy of the original piece. Okay. Which he like then... did he just like throw it on a photocopier and like call it a day? <laughs> no, because it's the '30s. So yeah. was he just sitting there in this antique shop going, "Don't look, write it, write it, write it, write it. Don't look at me." Yeah, just like copying it by hand. Yeah, I, like okay, It'd take forever. Yeah, it would. Uh, and would they Can't let do you do that? Like, I, you know, maybe if you're like a researcher, maybe, but just buy it. Well, I guess it's expensive. Just, just but... buy it. So. Instead, he copied it, which then he recopied and replaced the original, original, original. So he replaced the original heretic script with hieroglyphs. Okay. 
Uh, a fact that made doubters challenge its authenticity. Okay, because he translated he, he it into translated something else. Into hieroglyphics. Yeah. Supposedly. So, well, the Bible's translated, so. You know, already <laughs> a column, yes, in the alien category. The story resurfaced in 1953 in an article published by Tiffany Thayer. Thayer wrote that the papyrus was sent to Boris de Reichwiltz, who supposedly found the trans- transcriptions left among the documents from the dead Vatican Museum director, Albert Tooley, after he passed. Okay. So Tooley left these behind, and this guy found them. Yeah. And it's like the Vatican. Right. Like... <laughs> The Thule papyrus references circles of fire or fiery disks. The text tells of a high-speed flying machine that that lit up the sky of Egypt in the early evening hours before disappearing into outer space. Is this before or after the pyramids in Egypt? That's a fantastic question. Because this is 1440 BC. I'm going to Google it. The Giza pyramids? Yeah. It would be after because they're roughly they were roughly built around twenty five fifty to twenty four ninety. Okay, so like a thousand years later. Yeah, but do you think aliens built the pyramids? Well, yes. Maybe they were coming to check out the pyramids, see if they were still in good condition. Yeah, exactly. After a thousand years, uh, just doing some housekeeping. <laughs> yeah, just checking, see if there needs to be any repairs. Yeah, just alien housekeeping. <laughs> Alien housekeeping. I love that. So the Pharaoh Tutmos III allegedly witnessed this encounter himself and ordered his scribes to write about the incident. Okay. So he, the Pharaoh, is they say that the Pharaoh witnessed this. Okay. Uh, The papyrus talks about details of the structure of the UFO, which I couldn't really find, like, details of, but I only found little blurbs about the papyrus, and the impact it had on the surrounding areas. The translation said that the object was shining in the sky brighter than the sun, and they called it a circle of fire. And then here is a quick blurb from the translated papyrus. So it's shining brighter than the sun at night. Yeah, it also, I think it was early evening. So all of a sudden it's getting dark and then it's getting light again. (laughs) We're back to daytime. And who's not going to notice that? Right. Unless you're, like, inside, you know? In the early evening, maybe people were more tired in the ancient times. I guess so. So here is the translated blurb. Thereupon they, which is talking about the uh, fire circles. Okay. Thereupon they went up and higher, they went up higher, directed to the south. Fishes and volatiles fell down from the sky. It was a marvel never occurred since the foundation of this land. Caused his majesty to be brought incense to pacify the hearth. What happened to the book of the house of life to be remembered for an eternity? Sorry, I'm working on computing that. Yeah, it's ancient translation. So basically it sounds like after this happened, things fell down from the sky or maybe like just like it sounded like fish fell from the sky. <laughs> it sounded like fish fell from the sky. I think it, I don't know if it may be like something, it looked like something weird fell from the sky or maybe like the, the shapes like descended. Yeah. Um, and then the Pharaoh was brought incense to pacify his fear, it seems like. 
Yeah, just smell this. It'll make you feel better. Right. And never has something so crazy happened in all of eternity. That's my modern translation. All right. I like it. So obviously not everyone believes the sighting. Some people think that the papyrus is a hoax. We kind of talked about that they think that, you know, maybe he the translation because he copied it or whatever. Yeah. Others think that it could be, it could have been a meteor shower that these people were witnessing. However, that bright. Well, there's not like, there's not like sky pollution, like light pollution. Right. But they, people argue that ancient Egyptian astronomers would have never mistaken a meteor shower for a UFO because there were a lot of astronomers. We built the pyramids, you know, like those pyramids are so accurate to the stars it's crazy yeah so that's that's why people believe that aliens did them right but that's why they also believe too like the ancient egyptian astronomers would have never been like oh ufos oh nope actually that was just a meteor shower (laughs) no they would have never right so that was our first sighting our oldest sighting and we have quite a few of these like they're little blurbs mostly our next do you think okay so Let's, I really want to paint a picture for a moment. Sure. Because this is the first sighting in 1440 BC. Right. The first recorded one that I could find. Recorded. Yeah. Before the pyramids. Right. But alien technology probably wasn't like super, super great yet. Right. But it was still way better than ours. Still way better than ours. But think about it. Think about it in like sort of the timeline of like our space race and everything. Like, maybe, maybe the, the, the fire that they were seeing was a combustible kind of propellant. Oh, Like yeah. our rockets, right? And now they just float around in fucking orbs, you know? So- yeah, maybe. Like, honestly, maybe because it was such an old sighting. Yeah. Like, so maybe technology their technology changes. wasn't like super, super great yet. Yeah. Maybe it was just like one of the closest beings to us yeah and they're like oh we see a new civilization popping up let's like investigate you know who knows so the next sighting is according to writings by get ready for this didoris psychus timoleon timoleon okay timoleon timoleon i don't know timoleon is how it looks so i'm gonna say timoleon he reported that while he was traveling from Corinth to Sicily around 343 BC. So we're like taking a big jump. Okay. Several bright lights guided his journey. This was seen as a sign of help from the heavens and a text reads all through the night. He was preceded by a torch blazing in the sky up to the moment when the squadron made Harbor in Italy. So it kind of seemed like I didn't get a lot from this, but it kind of seemed like maybe it wasn't just him. Maybe it was a whole squadron of people and like this light. Was shining because they've said squadron, like squadron, like is... squadron, and and you said harbor, so they're boats, right? Right. So there's a group of boats landing in a harbor in Italy, and they're traveling, and this light is they're kind of following in this light, yeah, like kind of a guiding light to where they need to go. Yeah. Interestingly, Timoleon also claimed to have been foretold of fame and glory during his guidance, suggesting that some kind of interaction beyond the sighting had taken place, possibly telepathic communication. Oftentimes now in modern UFO sightings, there are talks of telepathic communication with aliens. Yeah. 
Um, many historians have claimed that the sighting may have nothing more been nothing more than a comet or meteor shower. Yeah, of course. However, there's no such events recorded in in that time, and the lights were visibly consistent in a fixed direction right up until the squadron arrived in Sicily, which is not how meteors or comets behave. Okay. So, like, a comet and a meteor shower doesn't just sit in the sky, right? They, like, shoot across the sky, and these sat in a fixed position through their journey. Yeah. Yeah, it was just hovering. And then it disappeared when they arrived. Yeah. Because it was guiding their way. Oh, that's so cool, though. Which, that one is one of the ones that people argue are, like, this could be one of the ones that they people thought was, like, a sign from the heavens. Yeah, because, like, if you're, like, in the middle of the ocean and there's no land in sight. Right. Right? And then all of a sudden, like, in sort of, like, a North Star way, there's this light that you begin following. Could it be the North Star? The brightest light there, in the sky? Maybe, but it says there were three. Oh, there were three. Orion's belt. Or it said several lights. Oh, so okay. I think I think I'm assuming three, but Yeah. But like we've also seen like the lights of the the lights that had occurred in Phoenix. And there's also the Phoenix lights. There are stars that could have the oh. There's also stars that potentially could have burnt out in this time frame from when yeah. we saw them to when like they saw them. Yeah. But like what's the likelihood that they were following this star all night and then it just happened to burn out? Like they happen like the the light speed. Yeah. Like that would be a weird con- coincidence of three stars burning out in the same period of time in the same fixed direction. Unless aliens blew them up in light years. <laughs> they were like, fuck these stars. Uh, so our next sighting comes from around 2000, or sorry, 218 BC in Rome, Italy. Okay. Livy, or full, full name known as Titus Liv- Livius. Okay. Um, so some of these like older historians get like nicknames throughout time, so... His now his nickname is Livy, I guess. Okay. He was a Roman historian born around fifty nine to sixty four BC, which seems weird because that seems like a really long stretch of time if this happened in two hundred and eighteen BC. So I think this is one of those instances of the like internet and timing and yeah, not sort of knowing reco- when the proper recording kind of happened. Yeah, or if it was just something he heard about and wrote about. Yeah. So he's famous for his works in the history of Rome and from the foundation of death to Augustus. Oh, from its foundation to its death of Augustus. So Livy reported a sighting of a huge fleet of ships seen in the sky near Rome. The translated text reads, phantom ships have been seen gleaming in the sky. Okay. That's the whole sighting. Phantom phantom ships. So you can make out more than just a ball of light. But it's like still phantom to me makes it means it's still kind of hazy or translucent in appearance. But this is still happening in BC. Right. So do we think they're like fucking canoes in the sky or (laughs) maybe I mean, maybe they're just like a shape that looks familiar to what we would see as a like a boat shape. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like The shape of a canoe is pretty much the easiest way. (laughs) <laughs> to put it for me. 
Um, so similarly, there were many sightings between 218 to 201 BC. In 218 BC, there were reports of ships which gleamed in the sky coming out of the clouds. Two years later, in 216 BC, there came a similar sighting of gleaming round shields traveling through the air. So we're sort of getting into the di- the, the, the disc soft- shape. Yeah. So many such sightings took place around this time because it was a time of war. Many researchers believe it was the chaos created during the conflict that conducted the increased UFO activity. So maybe like the UFO, like the aliens were intrigued by all this conflict and things that were happening. And And so they just wanted to watch from a distance. It was like their Saturday night, Sunday night football. Yeah. Sunday night football. But war. But war. (laughs) So... Some believe that it could have just been caused by paranoia of the time. Like, these sightings could have been, like, hallucinations or paranoia, like, looking over their shoulder, see something quick, and, like, it not have actually been that. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of these sightings, though, were often seen by multiple witnesses. Okay. that That's good. That's good for stories like this. Yeah. Um, but then we move on. Okay. To around 122 BC, over the skies of... Arminium, Italy, there are several sightings of three moons appearing in the sky together. Moons. Yeah. So, like, it has to be that big to look like a fucking moon. Yeah, and they're either... Death stars. Do we think the moons are full moons or crescents? Based on shape-wise. Do they specify? It doesn't specify, just in moons. Okay. Death stars. Death stars, so full moons. Yeah. These objects were visible during daylight hours as well as nighttime hours. So three moons. Yeah. (laughs) That's no moon. (laughs) Okay, so this one might strike a chord with you. Like, not a chord, but like a, oh, I know that name. Okay. All right. So it's going to be very familiar to you if you listen to the podcast Sawbones. Oh. We're talking about Pliny the Elder. (laughs) Oh, Pliny the Elder. (laughs) Of course he's in on this. <laughs> so full name is Gaius Plinius Secundus. I'm glad you I'm glad you just said Pliny the Elder. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Roman author who wrote the encyclopedic works The Natural History. This And was so much more. So much. Everything. He wrote about he everything. Had a say in a lot. He he got a lot to say. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> so if you have never listened to the podcast Sawbones, it is incredible like it's so interesting yes and they're only 30 minute episodes so like you can knock them out real quick and it's it's about like medical history and it's so fascinating like, yes check a it out. marital tour of misguided medicine love that you've got their whole slogan <laughs> i could start singing the taxpayers <laughs> so this was the kind of he had the kind of authority on scientific matters of the middle ages yes uh even though a lot of the information would be now not considered accurate yes Pliny the elder reported a ufo sighting in 76 bc saying that a flame of the star's fire was seen in the sky it grew as it descended until it appeared to be the size of the moon then ascended back up to the heavens and transformed into light so okay i see i see i i can vision i can visualize that because it's like a star yeah the closer it gets it's a moon the further back it gets, it's a fucking star again. Yeah. Done. Nailed it. 
I also, Pliny the Elder. He very beautifully written. Very, so beautifully written. I also saw that he reported of a story in, uh, like, he reported on the previous story of the three moons. Mm-hmm. The one from 122 BC in his natural history book, his second one. So I don't know if, like, these were older sightings and the books weren't as new or, like, or old or whatever, but that is, like, when I looked up the, the, the they were both kind of credited to him, so. Okay. Interesting. They were both kind of older. I mean, 76 to one, 122 to 76 is, like, what, 40 years, so maybe. Yeah. So, unrelated, this is a fun fact I saw that I thought you'd find interesting. Pliny the Elder died observing the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in Pompeii. Oh, really? Yeah. Isn't that the weirdest fun fact? That is the weirdest fun fact. It's also weird, the correlation to the Pompeii bricks. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd point that out to you. It's just that weird fun fact and good good correlation. Yeah. Who needs Project Bluebeam to correlate with your story? (laughs) (laughs) We just need Pompeii. We just need Pompeii. So now on to 12 BC, there's actually very little known about this particular incident, but it was kind of worth noting because it was simply so bizarre. Mm-hmm. In 12 BC, a strange comet-like object simply hovered over Rome for several days. Then, days. Days. That's not a comet. Days. Then it melted into what was described as a flash that looked similar to torches. It blew up? Yeah, it kind of seems like it blew up or... Some believe that because there was no sound of explosion or any loud noise, that maybe it was picked up by a mothership. It teleported. It like melted up into a mothership or something. Or it teleported. Or it teleported. Oh my God, that's crazy. Or like hyperspeed. Hyper- yeah, hyperspeed, like Star Trek. <laughs> but I thought that one was fascinating because it like hovered for several days. So that's not comet. That's not a comet. Yeah. Uh, in 7 BC, according to... Because the Earth... Do we know the Earth rotates yet? No, I think the astronomers... Astronomers? Astronomers? Astronomers know that the Earth rotates at this point in time. I think so. Um, because We've been studying because, astrology for, for a long time at this because point. Because they knew it rotated due to the fact that the stars changed. Right. So the fact that it hovers over Rome for several days... Means it's moving with them. Yes. So in 7 BC, according according to Plutarch, a Greek philosopher and historian, there was another UFO sighting. A Roman army commanded by Lycolis was about to begin battle with Mithridates IV of Pontus. Pontos? Mithridates? It's the fourth. It's M-I-T-H-R-I. So Mithri... D-A-T-E-S. Mithridate Mithridates? Okay, yeah. The fourth. The of fourth. Pontus. Pontus? Who knows? Pontoons. <laughs> Pontoon boats. Uh, when all of a sudden the sky burst asunder and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between the two armies. It was similar in shape to that of a wine jar or a pithos. So like a giant picture like a classic Grecian big vase. Okay, but like big, big vase. Yeah, like um, here I'll show you a quick picture. So it's a pithos. I don't know if like, like this classic. Oh, okay. Like the big ass vases. Yeah, (laughs) 
But they're like the wine. ones from Hercules yeah. that he breaks all of them. They're apparently wine jars. Um, oh, sweet. The shape was a molten silver, and the silvery object was reported by both armies. Okay. So it fell in between both armies that were about to battle and was reported by it both sides. just fell from the sky. Yeah. A silver large vase with wine in it? It wasn't. It didn't have anything in it. As far as I know, it was just the shape. Oh, I was hoping it, for there was some wine it in it. It said a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between them, and then it had a molten silver color. So it was probably like on fire descending from the... So maybe like was, a hot, like a hot metal color. Yeah, maybe something fell off a ship Ooh. and landed between the two, like an exhaust. Or um, so is if we're going with the same logic that we were earlier, like a accelerant or like a gas that yeah, like, like a are gas burning canister or something, a gas canister or like the engine. You know how like engines sort of are like projected in a specific way. Yeah, like. They're sort of like in a weird shapes vases. Yeah, kind of like, like to, it could have that like open shape like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it just falls off the ship. Maybe. Maybe it just fell off. Yeah. Because it said it burst asunder. Like something, the sky burst asunder. So that made me sound like maybe it explo- something exploded. Yeah. That's that's cool. Uh, now we're getting to the 80s. Oh. Not the 80s, like AD. Oh, AD, AD. <laughs> oh, AD. <laughs> We're going to 65 AD. Oh, so pretty close. Okay. Romani, Roma, Romano, Romano-Jewish historian Titus Flavius Josephus. Okay. Titus Flavius Josephus reported a sighting prior to the first Jewish-Roman war. This is the blurb about what he wrote about the experience. Okay. A certain prodigious, pro, pro, whatever, I don't know what that word is, <laughs> prodigious, an incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable. Were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to be deserved such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in armors were seen running around among the clouds. Oh, so like Apollo and... So this is... Is this where we get like Apollo and everything Well, from? this is like... Maybe, but it's like... Romani, Rom, Roman and Jewish, like Rome, Jewish. Um, the, and it says feels right to yeah. me. So maybe. So Titus Flav, Flavius Josephus, whatever Titus, <laughs> wrote the War of the Jews: A History of Destruction of Jerusalem, a book which dates to seventy-five A.D. There's a second passage which reads: Moreover, at the feast which we call Pentecost. As the priests were going by night to the inner temples, they said that in the first place, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. So he's saying that like they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And then there's these chariots and soldiers like seen in the sky. Yeah. Some people called him a prophet and think that this was an omen of the coming battle. People argued that this is a sign from God or a prophetic dream. Mm hmm. But it seems like it was seen by more than just him. Yeah. Right? Because if other people are talking about hearing the sounds and the quaking. Yeah. Others believe that this was a misinterpreted UFO sighting because similar accounts of oddly shaped clouds have been seen around this time. Specifically, people like to reference the before sighting Mm -hmm. as an argument to why this is a valid UFO sighting. So the previous silvery object that fell from the sky. 
Okay. In 150 AD, the brother of Pope Pius I. Okay. So the brother of the Pope. The brother of the Pope. Was said to see a UFO. The brother of the Pope probably has such a much cooler life. Yeah. He does not have to do as much as the Pope. But he probably still has a little bit of a restricted lifestyle because he can't shame his brother. Sure. (laughs) I would be a terrible sister of the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) So there are doubts that it was him as the actual witness. But this sighting was said to take place around Campana, Italy. The sighting took place in the middle of the afternoon. He claimed that there was a bright and sunny day when out of nowhere, an object described as a beast descended down. It was the shape and color of a piece of pottery and had the top of a top of multi colors that shot out fiery rays. Okay. It was a, it was a beast. So I would, I picture like a large, like pottery can be in any, so pottery maybe like a large bowl or a large vase, and then it had a lid on it, like a colorful top that shot out rays. So maybe that's like the traditional UFO shape. Like when you think about a UFO in your head, you like should think saucer. of little portholes and like the, ri- the rings or something. Yeah. The object landed on the ground, causing a cloud of dust. When the dust settled, a maiden clad in white was visible near the object. Oh, okay. There was nothing more about this story, but UFOs researchers made claims that angelic aliens dressed in white may be a cause of that, and that these are like a a common type of alien that people see is like an angelic looking alien dressed in white. Oh, that's crazy. So I just have a few more to talk about. I know I've talked about a lot, but I have two more. I've talked about a lot of alien sightings now, but like, I think they're just so fascinating. They're all so quick, you know? Yeah. So in... 741 AD in what is now modern day Dortmund. Um, what is Dortmund? Where is Dortmund? Germany, it looks like. Okay. It has another name or in like the, what it used to be. But when I was reading this sighting, it was getting so confusing because they kept switching between the ancient name and the modern name. So I'm just sticking with Dortmund. Okay. Anyway, so it was being attacked by a, bata- a battalion of Saxon soldiers. As the attack progressed... A bizarre object appeared in the sky. It resembled two flaming shields in a reddish color, and it appeared to be floating above the Saxon army. The army was so frightened, they immediately gave up their siege and retreated. Okay. And the last thing I want to talk about... Because it was just hovering over a battlefield. Yeah. It was just like these two shields. Okay, so Dortmund is a city in Germany, by the way. Okay. Yeah, that's what I kind of looked up, but it was like calling it by... like couple names and it was just confusing so i just kind of went with one name so the last thing i wanted to talk about is a little bit out of order in the sightings we've talked about already okay because it's been seen like all throughout time after ufo sightings okay so we're gonna talk about this uh, it's called angel hair and it's pasta yeah we're gonna talk about noodles (laughs) It's a chalk-like silvery substance which can cause ra- which can rain down after UFO sightings. Ew. Rains of chalk were reported back in 214 BC in Kales, and a similar incident occurred in Rome in 98 BC. In 196 AD, Caius Dio wrote of a fine rain resembling silver fell all over the city of Rome despite there being no clouds in the sky. 
Caius did not witness the angel hair falling, but he collected some of the residue on three brass coins to study it. And according to his report, the substance remained for three days and it disappeared on the fourth. So it like disintegrated. So, okay. Here's me going into like my theories again, Mm -hmm. because maybe they're advancing with their like propulsion kind of systems. So that would be what is exhausted from like the craft. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's the exhaust or some sort of like residue. Yeah. And so eventually it just maybe evaporates. Maybe so. Yeah. I don't know. Um, The most widely reported incident occurred in Oleron, Oleron, France in 1952. Okay. Ooh, okay. When great flakes were reported as falling from nearly cloudless skies. On October 27th, 1952, General Lucetti and Pietro Lastrucci uh, reported standing on the balcony of a hotel in St. Mark's Square in Venice and seeing two shining spindles flying across the sky, leaving a trail of angel hair. Yeah, it has to be their exhaust. Isn't Venice in Italy? Yeah. Yeah, so they said France in the first yeah. part. Oh, because 52 and then 54. I'm not, I got confused. I confused okay. myself. It's okay. Yeah, it has to be some sort of like exhaust or residue, something, you know? Something, yeah. Or maybe like... Maybe it's alien poop. Could be. They're just emptying, emptying their toilets. Yeah. They're just emptying their toilets as they pass over us. We're just the garbage planet. <laughs> One theory among UFOologists is that it is created from ionized air sleeting off an electromagnetic field that surrounds the UFO. I kind of like our theory better. I like our theory better. Um, but that is what I have for you on ancient alien sightings. I love that. I was so excited to read about this. I spent so long reading these. So there were so many that I left out. So you're telling me you're not on alien TikTok right now? Nope. How are you not? I on don't alien know how TikTok? I'm not on alien TikTok. Because there was so many sightings across the country in one day of these like silver orbs that were like hovering and being chased by like f-22s and shit and there were so many sightings like i think i saw one from uh arizona florida like the uk like things like that like all within a day or so and then the chinese spy balloon happened and then the two things that the u.s the three things that the u.s shot down yeah over the united states after well over north america after that and then the u.s gave up on searching for those things they shot down yeah which i believe is bullshit (laughs) but (laughs) because i like know of these things from but i'm not on that tiktok side like i don't see them on tiktok i am on that tiktok side and i love it and capybara tiktok I'm not on capybara TikTok. I love capybaras. I would have a capybara as a pet. I am on, I don't know. I don't even know what TikTok I'm on anymore. Okay. You know what I miss? Are you, not, are you on Pedro Pascal TikTok? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think I'm on the mentally unstable TikTok. I don't know how I got off of it. Please send me some TikToks so I can be come on. I send you TikToks all the time. I know. I need to watch them. Um, my bad. I had a comment and I forgot, fucking forgot what it Sorry. was. Probably my fault. Oh, I missed a balloon TikTok. 
Doubloon TikTok? Doubloon TikTok yeah. was everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere for a couple, for like, what, a month? And then I'm no longer, like, they just all disappeared. They did. Completely off the face of the planet. When I started collecting doubloons, I think I only got like 10 doubloons. Oh, I got quite a few. I had like a whole list. I, put, I started putting it, in a, putting it in a list too. So. On my, like, I have a list. Do I still have the list on my phone? It was very important to me. Let's see. Doubloons. I had only 1,753 doubloons, but I had a backpack, a gun, cat treats, a companion cat, health potions, a dragon, mac and cheese, spaghetti, stew, an uncooked fish, an empty potion bottle, and four ounces of cat cane. Cat cane? Yeah, I had four ounces of cat cane. Awesome. (laughs) I was on the balloon TikTok before I started putting that in my notes app, you know? And then you were telling me about how you were putting it in your notes app. And I was like, I should do that. And I only got like 10. Yeah. And then the balloon, the balloon TikTok disappeared. Such as trends. But yeah, um, that was a fun episode. It's almost been a two hour recording. It's an hour and 42 minutes long. So let's Ooh, wrap wow. this one up. <laughs> yeah. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We would really appreciate ratings, you telling all of your friends. Please follow us on our link tree at MFCast. You can find all of the places that are the more popular audio places for listening to our podcast and all of our social media accounts besides TikTok. Oh, which you can find our TikTok. Actually, I'm pretty sure it'd be pretty easy for you to go to our Instagram and find our TikTok. It is the MF cast on TikTok, but I try to post our TikToks as reels on our Instagram. Okay. And thank you to you guys all for listening. You're amazing, and we appreciate everything you sit through. Please join our Patreon. Yes, please. We have some good episodes on there. Yes, we're about to record a couple of episodes for Patreon here shortly. So please join that. It's 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 very inexpensive in our opinions for um, making us a weekly podcast in your life. Yeah. Thank you, Jenna, for our logo. Thank you, Cameron, who did our music. Music. And please send us your stories at marbleforestpodcast at gmail.com. That's it. And thank you for listening. Don't tempt fate. By not allowing alien housekeeping. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.